Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Hello there, it's six o'clock, I'm Michelle Dubry, and this is Dupes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today, now another day, and yet another report about the failing of a police force to protect children from child sexual exploitation. What on earth is going on this time in Oldham? But you know what, I just feel like we go round and around this circle way too frequently for my liking. What is the answer to all of this? How can we fix this problem once and for all? Because I don't believe it's a historic problem, by the way. I think it's very much a current and ongoing issue. And the biggest rail strikes in 30 years will go ahead this week after last-ditch attempts to try and reach a resolution failed. It's not just going to be rail, by the way. Many other unions are preparing themselves to ballot their members Unless what I would call quite eye-watering pay rises are granted. What do you think to all of this? Are we heading for a summer of discontent? Do you think it's reasonable to have a pay rise that's above and beyond inflation? And I want to pose a little question to you. Do you trust the media? for that Polly while keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight my panel we've got Michael Heaver who's the former Brexit party MEP Emily Hewitson conservative commentator and Laurie Lebon environmental policy researcher good evening to you three and you know the drill on Jubes and Co don't you by now it's not just about us here it's about you at home what is on your mind tonight get in touch with me let me know all your thoughts on the stories that we'll be discussing or have I missed anything tonight I always like to talk about what you're talking about Uh, Are you sitting there having a completely different conversation to me? If so, tell me, what are you uh, thinking about talking about what matters to you tonight? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email address. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. And don't forget, if you have not already, you can uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, download our app. Uh, We're everywhere, even on the radio, DAB+. I often listen when I'm in the car. Uh, I love it. So wherever you are, you are very, very welcome uh, tonight. By the way, my first contact was from Nick. You've asked if I can uh, wish your missus, your words, not mine, Katie, a very happy birthday today, apparently. She's watching and loves the show. 33 she is today. Cool, blimey, getting on a bit, that's what I say. Uh, Have a wonderful day, Katie, and I'm pleased that you enjoy the show. Right, let's get into our top story, shall we? An independent review says vulnerable children have been left exposed to sexual exploitation in Oldham because of, I quote, serious failings by the police and council. This is, of course, the latest damning report that's been published following the awful, horrendous abuse in Rotherham, Oxford, Telford, Rochdale. I've got to be honest, I could go on and on, but you get the drift. Uh, And of course, as we always hear when we go around these circles, as we seem to all the time, quite frankly, there were multiple missed opportunities to prevent the exploitation. These go back, by the way, to 2005. 
the authors of the report, though, said that there was no evidence to suggest that Oldham Council sought to cover up any of the abuse, but concluded that they were, I quote, historic failings and that some children had been failed by the agencies that were meant to protect them. And around and around we go. Uh, Joining me now is Bernard Gallagher, who runs an independent research into child protection. Good evening to you. Thanks for joining me. What did you make to this report today, Bernard? Um, It is a shocking report. Um, Clearly, things weren't done that should have been done. Children weren't protected. But I think the situation is much better now. Now, we can't afford to be complacent. We've always got to be uh, on our guard. But I would like to reassure you and also your, your viewers that the situation is much better nowadays. Yeah, you see, I mean, it's nice that you seek to reassure me, but um, I look to people like Maggie Oliver. I mean, she runs, uh, I've got so much respect for Maggie. She runs a fantastic foundation. And I know, for example, just in speaking to her, that foundation receives daily contact from uh, young girls that are still experiencing similar scenarios. She says herself, Maggie, uh, in response to this report, that in the past six months alone, she's referred 33 serious cases to the same uh, force. So to me, I don't actually feel that reassured that this thing is a historical thing as opposed to a current situation. I mean, I don't know what cases Maggie's referring to exactly. And obviously any cases of concern, as I say, without having that evidence, I can't really judge it. But as I say, um, I mean, it would be, in, in a way, it'd be incredible if agencies weren't taking these cases more seriously and responding to them much more effectively. Uh, that would just beggars belief, really. And again, I would just like to read, I mean, yeah, the situation may not be perfect now, but it's definitely much better than it was years ago. And it should be said in respect of this report, I mean, we are going back as far as, I think, 2005. So, you know, 17 years ago we're talking about. Things have definitely improved so you're optimistic about the picture now and the responses going forward? I am. Again, I would say, you know, we can't be complacent. Uh, but just to widen out this issue a little bit, it's important to say as terrible as these cases are and as badly indeed as some of them may have been dealt with, they constitute only a tiny proportion of the child protection problem in this country Social services receive something like, in England alone, 600,000 referrals from people concerned about children. And in the large majority of those cases, they're well handled. So it's important not to get these child sexual exploitation cases out of perspective. Yeah, Bernard, I have to say, I mean, you are the indeed the expert, so I bow to your knowledge. But to me, as uh, someone that just kind of talks about these issues reports on these issues and listens to them. Um, It feels to me, actually, that we hear, and I'm broadening my conversation out to reflect what you've just done as well, which is the same. Uh, I think you make a very good point that actually this is a small section of uh, child abuse cases. But to me, as a layperson, it feels very much, actually, uh, that we seem to hear more and more and more cases of uh, children being failed uh, by agencies like social services that you reference. You know, if I had a pound for every single time I seem to hear the phrase, lessons will be learned, um, I'd be a very rich woman. I feel like we don't seem to be learning many lessons when it comes to all this stuff at all. Well, 
referring specifically to child sexual exploitation cases, a lot of the reports, a lot of the scandals that we've been coming across in the last few years, they do refer back to cases from a decade, if not two decades ago, a bit like Jimmy Savile, for that matter. Uh, He was eventually exposed, admittedly after his death, but he'd been abusing children and adults for 50 years. Um, So again, I think our ability now to respond to these cases is much improved, and a lot of the cases indeed we are looking into are historical cases and I, I take your point, and particularly in respect of, uh, you know, these horrendous child murders we hear about, where children, often young children, are killed by their parents. I mean, the research seems to suggest that the numbers of those cases is remaining sort of stubbornly constant, if you would like. But set against that, of course, if we're talking about numbers over 10 or 20 years, the numbers of children in the population have has actually risen. So proportionately, on a proportionate basis, children are safer uh, these days. But again, even those child murder cases, they do constitute a tiny proportion, a tiny, tiny proportion of all child protection cases. And there is research, uh, particularly in America, and there's no reason why you think we'd be any different. Indeed, we should be better. But there is research in America to show the amount of child abuse in the population in general is actually going down. You know, the work that agencies are doing, and also much greater public awareness, that is actually uh, cutting the amount of child abuse that's going on. Yeah, again, I mean, I'm finding this fascinating, what you're telling me, because I would have thought the opposite, especially we've just had this whole scenario where we've been locked down uh, for two years, and unfortunately... Uh, when you have been, when you are being abused as a child, often your respite is things like going to school, um, and you know you are often saved by interactions with people, teachers, or whoever that might pick up signs, bruises, etc. And we remove that uh, for an awful lot of children for a prolonged period of time. So again, I bow to your knowledge, but I would have assumed the opposite; it would have been increasing. Well, again, there is research to suggest that there was indeed a spike in child abuse during COVID. But of course, COVID is a very particular phase that you know we've all been through, and that's on the decline. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, COVID is sort of is receding, and as it recedes, one would expect the amount of child abuse to go back to sort of normal levels, if not lower still. But I do tend to have a quite sort of positive outlook, I suppose, on life in general. And I think if one looks at domestic abuse, for example, homophobia, sexism, I think as society becomes more aware of those issues and more prepared to address them, I think those problems are declining likewise. Um, And I think it's the same with child abuse. I think as we become more aware of it and more prepared to tackle it, I think it is actually on the decrease And indeed, and I've touched upon this earlier, it would be amazing, in fact, if as our awareness has increased and our um, ability to respond to it has increased, if those weren't having some impact. I mean, if the problem was getting worse, it would make you wonder what we're all doing. Mm, I've got to say, I do wonder what a lot of people are doing. Uh, Nonetheless, I appreciate your optimism and I absolutely hope that you're right. Bernard Gallagher, thank you very much for your time. 
Michael Heaver, where do you sit on all this? Well, first of all, Michelle, I think one of the important things with this was the fact that you're highlighting it on your show, and well done to you and well done to GB News, because I think the fact that it felt, certainly to me, that for a long time a lot of this was swept under the carpet and not talked about, and we do need to talk about it, of course we do. Some of the details in this specific uh, review are very troubling indeed. For instance, a grooming uh, ringleader working for a council as a welfare rights officer, and the police not notifying the council of a serious allegation. So some really uh, damning uh, findings in this review. Interesting what your guest said there, because I actually spoke to a former social worker about this today, and they, they say much the same, that people are talking about this more and that therefore councils are putting uh, task forces together now much more to specifically tackle child sexual exploitation. So I do think there's more awareness of this issue. I do hope, of course, it's being tackled and hopefully we never see another one of these scandals again. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, Laurie, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I largely agree with that. Um, it's very troubling to read what was said in the report, um, as, as it always is in these certain cases. I agree with what Bernard is saying in the sense that society has got much better at being aware and acting on these types of um, this, this, these instances. Um, it's almost shocking as someone who uh, is in the beginning of their 30s to imagine a world in which we, you know, these kind of things are rampant. I've watched that uh, Jimmy Savile documentary on Netflix. Bernard was talking about money. It's astonishing. The thing that you had a, a set up in institutions in this country where that kind of behaviour, you know, someone could manipulate and get away with it. You know, we're sort of stuck in his nightmare in that regard. It's, it's good that we're, we're getting these kind of stories out in the open. I had a little reader report earlier I think it was also good that the report was commissioned by the, the local government, the local authority in the local area, to actually respond to certain issues that people were talking about in the local community and on social media. This is something that we have to really appreciate in the modern age, that people will see news stories, they'll get a certain um, idea of what's happening in their local area and in the country. And I think it's right that local government should listen to what is sometimes dismissed as rumour or speculation and actually attack that front on and say, yes, there were lots of failings, as this report has said. It's also done a job of trying to dispel some of the myths that existed there, because we have to make sure that we're seeing these things proportionately. We're recognising the threats to our children, while also not necessarily creating something that's even larger than it is. That's not me saying downplaying anything, but it's about making sure we actually get to the right people, the right causes, and change the right elements of our institutions. Here, here. Emily, a um, new face, by the way. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and obviously talking about such an important issue. I think the big story here isn't that um, the report found that apparently there wasn't an official cover-up, but it was the shocking details. And finally giving these children a, a voice and um, kind of uncovering finally the extent of the failings of the police and the council and Oldham Council, which were shocking. But I do worry if it wasn't for people like Maggie Oliver, mm. who was the whistleblower... Um, on behalf of the Greater Manchester Police, um, she whistled blue and exposed a lot of the cases. Would we have actually heard about this? And going forward, it shouldn't really take a whistleblower, you know, to, to have to expose this. It, sh it should, you know, be much more transparent to stop this happening to again. And I think we have learnt from it in many ways, but that's not to take away from the shocking facts of the case. And it's something that we should, you know, never forget. And I do worry about the impact of lockdowns on... Um, 
on children and on vulnerable children and not having that safe space of schools and um, the way in which uh, we've had many cases recently where within the reports um, and the uncoverments of the failings, we've actually found that a lot of social service visits were cut down due to COVID and things like that. And that's really worrying and we can't let that happen again. Um, and it was all blamed on COVID or whatever. But that doesn't take away from the fact that vulnerable children were at the brunt of that. And that's awful. And it's something that we can never let happen again. And I personally don't think for whatever reason schools should ever be closed again because it can be such a safe place for these children that are at risk absolutely. from this, these disgusting predators. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know what? I don't mind uh, being wrong every now and again. And on this issue, I absolutely would be delighted to be wrong because, you know, I do feel um, that a lot of this is still going on. Um, and I hope that I'm wrong. I really do. Uh, and I hope that actually some of these young people that have been very disbelieved um, over the years will actually be taken far more seriously now um, than they ever really have been. I think it's an absolute disgrace when you look at the way that some of these kids have been treated. Uh, they haven't been believed at all. Maggie Oliver, by the way, as we all mentioned here, someone that we very much have a lot of respect for. She's coming up tonight um, on Patrick Chris's show about half past ten, I think it is, twenty past ten, something like that, which is why she's not joining us today. Uh, but fascinating lady, and she will tell you as well that she gets calls every single day to her foundation uh, from people, from young girls, particularly seeking help. Make of that what you will. I'm uh, going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll have some of your response to that conversation. But also, I want to talk to you about strikes. Where do you stand on this? Because uh, the biggest rail strikes that we've seen in about 30 years will be happening this week, unless, of course, something happens between now and then, but don't bank on it. Uh, it's not just going to be rails, though. Lots of unions will be balloting their members across a whole broad spectrum uh, of different services and sectors. Is this the answer? You know, should we have this? If you don't get a pay rise that beats inflation, you're down tools, you go on strike. Is that the future? I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, we have an exclusive on the fight for justice for the vaccine injured and bereaved. Vicky Spit returns to reveal a major update. As Julian Assange's extradition is approved, his brother Gabriel joins to tell Mark how he's now turning to the Australian government for help after being let down by Pretty Patel. Plus, as the Home Office put plans for a new migrant camp in Linton on Ouse on hold, local campaigner Olga Matias will open up about what could be the first step in securing victory for her and her fellow villagers. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show tonight at 8 o'clock. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Uh, lots of response, I have to say, um, on that last topic. Um, Richard, I think you, for me, you hit the nail on the head because I've had so much response, can't read it all, but Richard says, you're right, we go around and around and around and it's always, seems to be years before the authorities will investigate, then you set up an inquiry, then it takes years to come back on that, then you say it's much better now and that these problems were historic, we move on, nothing to see here, says Richard. Uh, you've summed up exactly my thoughts, I have to say. Um, also, Frank says GB News is the only news channel leading their 6pm bulletings with the appalling um, situation that's been happening with regards to child sex abuse report. I have to say, 
this is a topic that we uh, on this show and I know on other shows as well feel very, very passionately about. So we will indeed uh, keep covering it. Don't you worry about that. Right, let's talk rail strike, shall we? The biggest rail strike uh, for 30 years will go ahead tomorrow after last-minute talks broke down. This is according to the RMT union now. 40,000 workers will walk out this week. It's going to affect about 13 train operators. Of course, you'll know the details by now. Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday uh, is when it's planned. This has been called the biggest industrial action on the railways for a generation. According to the RMT, by the way, it reckons now it's got a mandate for six months uh, of industrial action, should it choose to, uh, potentially at two weeks' notice each time. Just to recap, by the way, the union is asking for a pay rise of 7%, uh, which is lower than inflation, but still uh, higher than that which has been offered by a lot of employers. Um, Laurie, shall I open up with you on this one? Sure. Um, It's going to be pretty painful for a lot of people around the country that will have to experience these strikes. Um, A lot of people getting disrupted, including me, and I'm sure other people on this panel here. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the context in which this is happening. We've had a massive squeeze on our wage growth in this country over the last decade, one that's actually quite unprecedented uh, over the period of, of in some cases, hundreds of years. Um, We've then got the immediate hit right now of inflation. That means Mm. the cost of things have then suddenly increased hugely. And what that basically means is that people can't afford as much of the basic necessities that they used to be able to, right? For those people who are in industries where they have organised together so they have power, one of the only tools at their disposal is to hit the nuclear button and to strike. And that's what's happening here. Um, We could focus on that in the context of inflation to say, oh, these people are striking. This is hugely disruptive to our lives. It could have this impact and so on and so forth. In many respects, that conversation has to be had. For me, though, tonight, an even more important conversation to have is making sure this country is protected, that workers are protected from these inflationary impacts, from the prices of things spiking, right? And there are largely, there are three, I'll do this very quickly, three quick things that we need to think about in that regard. We need to make sure that we're more robust to what is, in this case, largely external hits in inflation. We need to become less dependent on certain sources of energy so that when they spike in price, we don't get absolutely hit by that. Secondly, we should be talking more about the profits of certain companies. Companies are making loads more profits right now because everything's got more expensive, right? But they are also increasing their prices, not just because things are more expensive for them to buy, but to make profits. We're talking about small businesses, talking about big corporates. So we should also be thinking, talking about the impact they're having on the country. And thirdly, we have to understand that when we had the financial crisis and when we had COVID and stock markets began to crash, a huge amount of money was pumped into stock markets to keep them inflated, to keep them going, to bail them out, basically. We haven't had a similar level of bailout for people generally in this country. So those, for me, are the three main things that we need to be talking about. The fact we're not talking about them means that people have to resort to strike, which then causes all this kind of disruption. Uh, I was just about to come back on you, but actually, before I do that, I'm just going to bring Michael in. Um, Michael, where do you sit on that? I think one of the big problems that they're going to face, obviously, after lockdown, after COVID, is in terms of getting people back uh, using trains. I mean, I've got plenty of friends who don't mind working from home. They've effectively had a pay rise because they're not paying hundreds of pounds commuting every day anymore. So they're perfectly happy to sit at home. If you're talking about uncertainty now, not just in the next week, but for the next six months, you're going to have a situation very quickly where an increasing number of workers are going to say, well, I'm not putting up with that disruption. I want to sit at home and do work working from home again, which will then lead to a depressed demand in terms of the amount of people using 
trains and what's then going to happen? There'll be a massive financial hit. So this could backfire spectacularly in terms of undermining people's faith and confidence in using the train and going in and commuting every day. Mm. Emily? Um, well, I, th- I think it's interesting, really, because I don't think this is the best way for the rail unions to get the general public on board, if you pardon the pun, thought of that one myself. Um, but, there, yeah. but it means that people are going to have to rely on travelling by car, which, number one, isn't great for the envir- environment, but number two, we know that fuel prices have spiked sky high. At this current time, you've also got the problems of GCSE and A-levels. If people now can't get to um, exams due to this disruption, especially in London, where people people rely on the tubes often to get to school, um, you're just not going to get people on board. And I think the general issue is um, who funds this and if it ends up going down to the passenger and they have to then pay higher train fares, they'll either resort to working from home or other travel issues or they'll just generally you know, have contempt for the unions. Or alternatively, it could go down to the taxpayer. And as we know at the moment, we're seeing um, tax hikes and there's a squeeze on the cost of living um, for the ordinary person as well as uh, people that, w- that work for these train companies. Um, so I think the big issue is is kind of that the public won't support this and actually won't back this. I think the timing's quite bad. And if you now um, kind of pander to these demands, what's to stop other kind of sectors also doing the same and expecting similar results by striking it just kind of has a big domino effect and i don't think this is something that the public supports um so laurie i just want to come back on you what i would have added by the way is a a point four to your three point uh area of focus i would have said about consequences of actions because one of the reasons that we're in this situation this inflationary situation is because so many uh, people places countries whatever you want to say shut down for covid and they had these draconian uh, ridiculous uh, entire economics uh, shutdowns, which I think was overkill. My point with it is the unintended consequences, I don't feel, were ever properly, truly considered. Uh, if people were perhaps warning about, you know, you've got to be careful, there's going to be consequences to this, they were called all manner of names and almost shut out of public debate in many opinion, many instances. So I would add that point four to your three-point thing. But If I move away briefly from just pay, because what we're talking about up until now has been around the levels of pay and inflation, etc. You know, a lot of what's going on here is not just about pay. It's about um, terms and conditions. Um, It's about things like automation. It's about like it's about unions wanting guarantees from organisations about compulsory redundancies. And one of the things you've got to kind of balance as a union, absolutely, you're there to protect your members' interests. So I get it. You're doing your job. You know, you want to get the best uh, deal for your people. But you've got to be careful, you know, as a union, because um, you'll get organisations, and we saw it in P&O, that wanted to restructure their business, that sat there, looked at it, and looked at their piece of paper and said, you know, on balance, I'm not even going to go down the route of messing around with the unions. They're just going to push back everything we want to do. Let's just forget them. Get rid, move on, start something different. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be careful as a union, actually, because life does have to change. Business does have to evolve. And you've got to be able to balance that. So where do you stand on things like automation, on things like protecting 35-hour work weeks, uh, having Sundays as almost a voluntary uh, thing to pipe in on despite you running a, a seven-day operation, etc.? Mm. I mean, I think that though things like automation are going to inevitably happen and it's very difficult for certain parts of the economy to transition, things like trains, etc., right? And there will be painful changes that will happen. 
the fact that this isn't just about the railways, that it's about barristers, about teachers, mm. about people in the NHS as well. I've got a mate who's just um, he's going to be a doctor soon and the pay he's getting in his first year of being a doctor as out of, of training is so much lower in real terms than it was for someone who did it 10 years before him, right? And one of the, reason why, one of the reasons why that's happening is because the UK has some of the most stringent laws against workers organising themselves in any other country in the world. It doesn't feel like that right now because the RMT union is hitting the nuclear button and organising strikes at a very difficult time for people, for back of COVID, with exams and it being the summer and so on and so forth, right? If there had been more worker power in this country, I'm not talking, you know, workers holding number 10 up with gunpoint or whatever accusations were passed around in the 70s when there's similar effects like this happened in the past. I'm talking about just there being a bit more of a, a balance between the power of, you, you used the fair example, the power of often international companies who are, who are sweating these companies for profits, the actual service price for profit. Less power for them and more power for the workers. We might have found ourselves a situation over the last few decades where actually a kind of more of a balance, as you're describing it, could have been struck. We all have had experience of how bad the trains are in this country. The staff who run them have experienced how bad they are. It's not them who decide to carve off the money that the government is subsidising them to send them to tax havens and so on. They don't get enough pay, they don't get enough uh, good standards and so on. It hits us as, as people use the trains when they decide to strike. But my goodness, we just don't have enough of that balance between the power of the people who run these companies, often faceless hedge funds who move, divert the profits through tax havens, and then the people who work for them. And right now, it's very difficult to have a conversation because we're going to get negatively impacted by these strikes. But we need to partly be annoyed with those unions, but also partly turn to the government and be like, hang on, how have you created a situation in society where teachers have got a 20% pay cut in real terms? Well, by the way, you mentioned doctors, um, and someone just written in and said, Michelle, it's easier to basically say who's not striking these days than who is either now or has the potential to be, and you've got a good point. You mentioned doctors, by the way. British Medical Association, who represent doctors, say that they're going to prepare for a ballot unless junior doctors are given a 22% uh, restorative pay rise, 22% teachers. Uh, they're going to ballot members over action, uh, this is the NA, NAS, UWT, uh, unless they get a 12% pay rise. Uh, law, you mentioned law, barristers, uh, they're going to go on strike. Parking wardens uh, are considering it. Royal mail workers are considering it. And on and on it goes. Michael Heaver, do you think it's realistic um, for people in this day and age to be, I'll just give the example there about junior doctors wanting a 22% pay rise. Is that realistic? Is it going to happen? No, it isn't. It's not realistic, in my opinion. Um, and hopefully we don't see this chaos unleashed because we've actually, as a country, just been for a very tough time where <laughs> services have been shut down. I mean, you only have to look at the NHS waiting list now to see that if any of this strike action went ahead, the carnage that that would then unleash on top of the burden we've already got in the NHS in terms of the huge and uh, fast-growing waiting list would be absolute carnage. And I just done, you know, repeat the point where we talk about trains, we talk about uh, other institutions in this country, you know, this can backfire big time. If you start uh, undermining people's uh, faith in what you're doing and the service that you are providing, ultimately, especially when it comes to something like trains, people might just decide not to use the service anymore. The world has changed post-lockdown. You know, the idea that everyone has to go and commute to the office every day, clearly the numbers are already reduced in terms of rail capacity, in terms of the number of people going. And it could drastically fall maybe on a permanent basis if we're seriously going to be talking about these sorts of uh, strikes for six months or more. Well, yeah, I mean, you say people are potentially stopping using services. I travel, Emily, from Hull to London frequently. I can't even remember the last time I did it 
uh, on the train because I got sick to the back teeth of getting on a train uh, or trying to get on a train only to find out that the train had been cancelled mm. or, I don't know, there was some random replacement bus service I had to get on or I had to go via here or via that. I was fed up with it. So now mm. I drive. So I've already taken that step. Mm. Many people, are they can't take that step. They don't have a car or whatever. So they are restricted to these services. Also, on average, it's now around £100 to fill up a car. You know, in a time of um, financial crisis, that's that's not easy for people and it's not realistic. And I really sympathise with you because, you know, I've been a student in London. I've been getting the tube and I moan when the tube is late or whatever. But people in the north have even worse um, rail infrastructure. And it seems to be a big problem. And at the end of the day, I do favour like a high wage um, kind of structure. But I think there's a time and a place to to give pay rises. And I'm just not sure right now is the correct time to do that. Yeah, but the flip side of it is, though, many of you will be watching this at home. You might be in one of these industries, these jobs, whatever. And you will really be worried about how you are going to afford to live. Because, uh, you know, I can't sugarcoat this. I can't make it positive news for you because, unfortunately, it's not. I don't think we've seen anything yet. Well, let's lower taxes. Well, there you go. I mean, I do think, <laughs> well, I do, I do think there's an argument, actually, for more government intervention. And it has surprised me, actually, and disappointed me that they've not taken more actions, whether it's lower, um, lowering taxation, whether it's pausing things like the, you know, the national insurance hike that mm. they put into place. Why, why did you need to do that Fight. now? Why didn't you wait? It's a mess. The NHS is an absolute mess. It's been that way for goodness knows how long. So what difference would an extra six months have made, for example, to that? Lots of you, by the way, say, Michelle, what are you doing moaning about uh, parking wardens going on strike? Lots of you are celebrating that, by the way. You make a very good point, my friends. Uh, Apparently this month, traffic wardens will start a seven-day strike uh, in protest at pay cuts and fire and rehire tactics. Uh, Lots of you writing in saying you very much welcome that strike. I'll say nothing. Right, going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll have your reactions uh, to that story. But also, I want to pose a question so you can ponder it whilst I'm in the break. Do you trust the media? There you go. That's your homework for the break. And I'll see you in a couple of minutes. You can get in touch with me at GBviews at GBnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GBnews. And let me know your thoughts. And I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes and Co. Um, I was asking you um, if you trust the media just before the break. Uh, someone's uh, just sent a message saying, I'll leave your name out of it. You said, Michelle, you've just made me laugh so hard. I've cracked a rib. I hope not. Uh, anyway, coming up at seven o'clock, you've got Nigel Farage. Nigel, good evening to you. What have you got coming up for us? Good evening. Well, I was struck over the weekend listening to the RMT leader, Mick Lynch, that it was shades of Arthur Scargill in 1984. So we're going to debate with a Labour MP and a government minister. Is this a justifiable demand for more pay and keeping the same conditions? Or is this outright leftist class warfare that's going to damage the country hugely? And that will be our big debate tonight. Looking forward to it, Nigel. We'll see you at seven o'clock tonight. Um, has anyone been watching, um, what's it called now? Is it Sherwood? Mm. Have you been watching it? Mm. No. No? You're just nodding and saying, yeah. I've read a review of it. I bet you've not been I've watching. read a review of it. Look, these lot, they're just, they're just humouring out. We've been on TikTok. The reason <laughs> I was asking, by the way, is because it's all set in like a mining um, yeah. place and the start of the programme is like recapping about the strikes and you see your Arthur uh, Scargills, you see your Maggie Thatchers. 
And you kind of think, uh, it was almost like a different level of kind of class. And I don't know, Margaret Thatcher, she was having absolutely none of it. Skagel having absolutely none of it. And it is a different league, really, to what it is these days. Yeah, it's a, and can I just, a quick one on this. The, it, one of the things that happened in the 1970s was a similar thing to now, where the prices of things shot up because of stuff that happened abroad. In that case, one of the reasons was that all producing company, com- countries in the Middle East suddenly said, we're going to not put oil on the market and stuff, right? So everything, the price of things shot up. At the time, some people said, hang on a minute, that shock will disappear. Things will become cheaper. It will calm down later when we start to get oil back on the market. But at the time, it was partly used as an excuse to smash the power of unions. Some people said they've got too much power. And in many ways, that may have been the case. But in the, in the decades since, we've lost that worker power. And we just end up in this sort of situation now where they have to just use this nuclear option. So we've got to get a bit more balance of power in the economy again. Balance of power in the economy. There you go. That's Laurie's scenario. Uh, Kate says, Michelle would all love a 10% pay rise. However, she says she's seen some of these salaries that people are on. And if they can't live on their wages, they're living beyond their means. That's what Katie says. Pat says, if you don't like what you paid, why don't you go and get another job? Oh, you're harsh, aren't you, Pat? You're not messing around. Um, What else? Yeah, again, another person saying, if you don't like your job and your wages, you can leave. Um, Or join a union. Join a union. That's what Laurie says. Glenn says, what about pensioners? Um, I get this one often when we talk about strikes. Uh, they cut down tools and strike. No, unfortunately, you cannot. Uh, let's talk about younger people, shall we? Their trust in traditional news sources. Apparently, it's getting less and less. They're turning more and more to social media for their information. That's according to a new report, which has found that 18 to 24-year-olds are now relying on stuff like TikTok and Instagram for their news. got to say, I'm a little bit too old for that, so that is not for me. But it does make me ponder... Uh, what about this? You know, because I hear often about the media and people's lack of trust in it. So I don't even think it is just a young person's thing because I've asked you, uh, um, do you trust the media? Lots of people basically laughing at that question, which tells me uh, the answer that I think I need to know. Emily, you are a younger person than me. What do you think to this? Well, I think I'm the only, no offence to my fellow panellists, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that fits into the 1824 category. That's me. Is that okay for you? And um, I do actually have sympathy with this because I think as a young person, where is the best place to get news from? And I think that applies to... TV news, obviously. Well, of of course, but that kind of feeds into my point. Thank goodness for you, because I think there's kind of three places as a young person where you can get news from. Number one, your parents. And obviously there's a lot of issues with um, political bias when they're giving opinions and things. And you see a lot of three-year-olds attending these climate protests and do they really understand? Let's be honest, probably not. And if I had listened to my dad, I'd be this raging left-wing Remainer. So um, I, I certainly didn't take my political news from my dad, I can tell you that much. Or there's social media. And the problem with that is how quickly uh, fake news spreads. For example, I remember a few months ago during the pandemic, uh, there was a rumour that Pretty Patel spent £77,000 on getting her eyebrows done. And there really was thousands of retweets and likes, and it turned out that she had just ordered a PPE that happened to be a former beauty company or 
or something along those lines. And then there's the mainstream media. And obviously, this is something that's been exposed more recently. Uh, but there's a lot of problems with, with institutions like the BBC and whether they are truly neutral or can truly be neutral. Um, so I do kind of feel it's like a hard uh, world to navigate. But I certainly don't think young people should be looking to uh, kind of social media influencers, your Kim Kardashians, who aren't even honest half the time about what uh, kind of filler they've had done. So it's, it's something to be careful of. And I think the answer to it all is question all media and uh, take your information for from a variety of sources uh, to form your own opinion, because I think it is important to question things and uh, kind of delve a bit deeper and not take everything on face value. But TikTok isn't the answer. <laughs> yeah, I've got to say, I do worry, by the way, about when it comes to young kids and what we teach them at schools. Critical thinking does not seem to be as prominent as I personally think it ought to be. But, Michael, where do you sit in terms of this trust in the media generally? Well, I'm certainly not on TikTok. I'm not young enough for that. But in terms of technology, being kicked off, was you on it? No, no, I'm not being kicked off for that one. I promise. But in terms of um, in terms of technology, that being the game changer here, you know, for instance, I watch GB News on my TV through the YouTube app, and I think you know it makes things like the BBC license fee just look increasingly ridiculous with each passing year. But this Reuters, I think this is the report you're referring to, the Reuters Institute report, is really, really interesting because it was an international comparison, and what it found is that we here in the UK have lower trust in mainstream media than in most European countries. So lower than in Denmark, lower than in Norway, lower than the Netherlands, lower than Germany. And get this, this blew my mind when I read this. The number of people in this country now that actively avoid the news because they find it too negative, too depressing, and that's, by the way, it's why we need GB News to be positive about our country instead of just negative all the time. The number of news avoiders they described as in the UK has doubled in five years, it's gone from about 24% of the population to 46% of Brits. So getting on for half the population in this country now are so tired of some of the stuff they see on mainstream media that they actively avoid the news. It's why we need GB News and alternatives uh, like it. And I just think that is a damning indictment on what the media has put out and has turned so many people, literally turned them off. But Laurie... Um... In fact, actually, you tell me what you think about trusting media generally, and then I'll put a point to you. Um, the, we were in a situation for decades in this country where we were dominated by a very small number of mainstream media companies, right? I mean, there's a, re there's a really interesting moment just after the Second World War where uh, the Prime Minister at the time, Clement Attlee, and then Winston Churchill... Uh, sorry, Winston Churchill Prime Minister, Clement Attlee was running against him. And they did their party political broadcast on BBC Radio, and half the population listened to them. Compare that now, where just, you know, you're scraping for a certain number of views on TV and stuff. It's quite an interesting comparison of what it used to be like. There was always going to be a moment where we then started to be like, hang on a minute, I'm hearing other views. Why don't they conform with the views of the people I see on the news and so on and so forth? I think in some ways, the mainstream media companies have found it very difficult to handle that situation. And they've resorted to certain behaviours that then have turned us off even more, right? During COVID, there was a huge incentive to kind of have the the red live news thing flashing at us all the time and to maybe talk more about death figures and other things to grab people's attention, you know, bad news sells. In America, we saw this with the mainstream media just reporting everything that Trump did because it, they earned a lot of money, basically, in a clickbait economy. And I think people are cotton on to that. And they've also cotton on to the fact that that sometimes accentuates the bad even more than we should expect before. I think they've also not been able to deal with the fact the world has become far more complicated and sometimes, not all journalists, but sometimes journalists react to that complexity and how difficult it is to be a specialist on everything, to understand all the complexity. 
and go more towards personality politics, for example. So we get more reporting about, say, Partygate than we do about the complexities of why we've got high inflation at the moment. And I think that those are, are things that newsrooms have, have really got to grapple with. We've got to work out how to make news coverage that isn't always negative, but still gets clicks and attention, while also making sure they can deal with the complexity of the modern world. Very difficult. Yeah, and also, people always say, um, oh, you know, the news is so depressing, and I feel really depressed, and now that I've tuned in and realised that this person's dead, and this has gone wrong, and this and that and this, which I completely concur, and I agree with. Sometimes I listen to the headlines, my goodness, gracious <laughs> me, what is this world coming to? But, but, I frequently said, I mean, I know I've done it on my social media, I said, guys, you know what? I want to report more positivity. Tell me if you're aware of something positive, something decent, something good. What is going on? What do you know of? Share with me. Talk to me. I'll get it broadcast out there. The response I get is minuscule. Whereas if I was then to say, what do you think to this, that and the other, which is like a bad thing, people would then respond in their droves. So sometimes I wonder, while we all say that we want positivity, me included, by the way, Are we just more drawn to, there's the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads, which I don't like, but I'm just, that is a a saying that's out there. You know, do we, as much as we say we want positivity, the second that there's a headline that this person's died or this person's killed his mum or whatever it is, that's what we click on. I'm looking at you, Emily. Oh, I, no, I don't know why I'm looking at you, but I just... What do no, you... I, I think you're completely right. I mean, sensationalism sells, and we saw that throughout COVID. Um, it was always the negative stories that, you know, even if people were critical of the lockdown policies, it was the more negative stories that, that were getting tweeted out because people were criticising those stories. But in a way, they generated the clicks. Um, and media can only feed off that because at the end of the day, most of them are money-making businesses for the most part. But I think there is one kind of exception to this, and that's the recent um, monkeypox scare. Uh, the media, I believe, has really tried to push this and um, been very sensationalist with the headlines. But really, I don't think it's gained as much traction as, um, you know, yeah, in other um, cases. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you now actually see the opposite, and the media are, have kind of dwindled that out a little bit and are not reporting or focusing on it so much. So I think it's up to us, really, to start rejecting those sensationalist headlines and kind of, you know... Be the be the choosers of 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 the big stories in many ways and reject sensationalism. Mm. Yeah, and a, just a positive and a positive thing to be positive about the news moving forward is that due to technology, people have never had more choice. Mm. If they find that a news is you know uh, you know scaremongering. They've got so much choice now that they can simply switch off and, and, and listen to something else. So the hold that, you know, big media companies used to have over people, listen to us or you haven't got any other choice, other, other choices really, that's basically out the window now. Yeah, and I have to say, one of the reasons, if I think about why I joined GB News, because my background really was business. I wasn't really a full-time TV person. I was drawn to this project because I just felt that there was so much bias in the media. I was a Brexiteer, for example. I was consistently the only Brexit voice on a panel. Um, I was so tired about certain perspectives being, um, you know, dismissed as, oh, that's racist viewpoint, that's a stupid viewpoint, that's an unacceptable viewpoint. And I just felt there was this huge disconnect between what people actually felt or what a lot of people felt and what the media was reflecting and representing, and I see GB News as an opportunity, to have honest and open dialogue without stupid smears and all the rest of it, because I think that's just ridiculous and unnecessary. Lots of you are sharing my sentiment, by the way, saying that you had previously disengaged with the media, but GB News has turned you 
uh, back onto this. That reassures me because I feel like we're actually doing what we tried uh, to set out and achieve, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to indulge, really. A lot of love for GB News. You've got about two seconds, so be very quick. If what you want to say is two seconds, you can say it. If not, you can't. Go on. We need more local public news that is owned and, and responsible to the local people. More local uh, news. Do you buy your local paper, by the way? Um, tell me. I'm fascinated. Anyway, that's all we've got time for, Michael, Laurie and Emily. New face, thank you very much for your uh, input tonight. Thank you at home as well for yours. Have a great evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.